For as long as we have lived, for as long as we have known, love has carried us. You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Genesis Covenant Church in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. You can find out more about us at www.genesiscov.org. Enjoy the teaching in it together. Uh, today's scripture reading is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The word of the Lord. Hi, I'm Deva. Wow, okay, that's... Um, We have been going to Genesis, my husband Charlie and I and our two kids, Abby and CJ. Um for a little over two years now. And there is so much that we love about this community and the people that are part of this community. Um, But before we knew any of that or really knew any of you, uh, what drew us in and what kept us coming back was the authenticity. This place is real. And I think that's hard to find anywhere. I think it's especially hard to find in churches. And the reason I'm starting here is that as much as I treasure authenticity and the real deal, I have learned that authenticity comes at a price. It demands vulnerability. Um, And that means being raw and real. Sometimes, like right now, that's scary um, or messy or uncomfortable. But if the people that are up here on Sundays, uh, the people in your community group, the people you do life with aren't vulnerable with you, that creates a real barrier to relationship and to true community. So in the spirit of being true to this community, I'm going to be really vulnerable with you this morning. Um, If you know me, please pray for me. And I would like to pray for all of us before we get started. Holy Spirit, we invite you to be with us now. We come to you just the way we are, vulnerable, messy, and hurting people, and ask that you meet us here. Amen. In the verses Charlie just read, uh, Paul's writing to the Thessalonians to encourage them, to give them hope, and to let them know what they can expect when Jesus returns. I think the first thing this morning we need to be really clear about is what is not being said. Um, It does not say, don't grieve. What it says is, don't grieve like everyone else. 
the people who have no hope. At various points in my life, I've received the message, and maybe some of you have too, that if you're really, truly a holy Christian, whatever that means, um, that you won't grieve. And I was 20 years old when my dad died, and I thought maybe I could be sad for a little bit, but that I wouldn't all out grieve, because I had the hope, right? I knew that my dad went to heaven, and that I'd see him again someday. I thought my pain should be a light and momentary trouble, that my present suffering wasn't worth talking about, that I should be joyful always and strong and courageous. Basically, what I knew was just enough of the Bible to mess myself up. (laughs) Here's what I know now, that grief is a part of life. It's part of a Christian's life. And it was part of Jesus' life. When Isaiah was talking about the coming Messiah, he called Jesus a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. When John the Baptist was beheaded and Jesus got this news, he got into a boat by himself, and he withdrew to a solitary place. Jesus was grieving. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Have you been there? I want to take just a minute to say that I'm primarily going to be talking about the grief that we experience when someone we love dies, but that there's all kinds of losses in life that cause us grief. Could be the end of a marriage or relationship, might be distance from someone you love or the loss of a job, maybe infertility or the death of a dream. Or you might grieve the tragedy and injustice in the world of which there is no shortage. But regardless of what your grief is, you have permission to grieve. The Bible says the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and God blesses those who mourn, who grieve, and that they will be comforted. So let's dispel any notion that says grief is bad or that it isn't okay to grieve. Back to Paul, he says, I'm going to give you hope in your grief. And here's here's what it is. That those who have already died are with Jesus in heaven, and someday we'll all be caught up in the clouds together, reunited, and it feels so good. (laughs) So encourage one another with this. All right, so what's the hope? According to Paul, the hope is eternal hope, a someday hope. And that's huge, and it's important. And the assurance of this hope is the reason that Jesus came and died on the cross. So don't hear me dismiss this hope as irrelevant or insignificant in any way. This is hope, and it's a vital part of this. And I needed something more. Uh, Back in 2005, Charlie and I had these two great kids, uh, although they were quite a bit smaller then. And we decided they were so great, we wanted more of them. Uh, This time we had some trouble and tried unsuccessfully for about three years to get pregnant. Eventually I did get pregnant, and we were all so excited. Um, I passed that 12-week mark, and we set up the nursery, and we're talking about names. And then the time came for the big gender reveal ultrasound. We took the whole family with us, 
And I remember lying on the table uh, with Charlie and the kids looking at the image on the big screen. Uh, but I was watching the face of the nurse fall as she discovered our baby didn't have a heartbeat. And my first thought in that moment was, I can't live through this. I can't do this. My soul was overwhelmed with sorrow. We were quickly ushered out of that office, and they said, we'll call you when a bed opens up to induce labor. And by the time we got to the car, I was already mad at God. We had tried for this baby, prayed for this baby. He was loved and wanted, and now he was gone. But on the ride home that day, I heard God speak to me more clearly than I'd ever heard him before. He said, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And I told God to shut up. I wasn't interested in hearing from him. I didn't want to know what future plans he had in mind. I certainly felt harmed. But he kept it up, despite my protest. And he spoke those words over me the entire long car ride home. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. To be honest, I had known that verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, as long as I could remember, but it had never been near and dear to my heart. Maybe I saw it on too many keychains and graduation cards, but it always seemed trite to me. On this day, it didn't seem trite. It just seemed stupid. What was the hope, God? Are you going to bring my baby back? I wish I could tell you I went home that day and just worked it all out with God, found my hope, but I didn't. I had a long journey ahead of me uh, that didn't even begin until January 29th, 2009, when we met and then said goodbye to our baby boy, Christian. About six months after that day, I was sitting in our living room and I told Charlie, I'm never going to be happy again. And that sounds really dramatic, but it <laughs> wasn't really what I was saying. I just... I didn't have hope. I said, I'm going to go through the motions, and I'll smile and laugh and do the things you're supposed to do. But my heart wasn't in it. I knew about the eternal hope, the someday hope. But I was 31 years old at the time. Statistically speaking, I could be looking at 50 more years on this planet. And what about all that time? What hope did I have for today or next month or next year? And then one day, Psalm 27, 13, pretty much jumped off the page at me. David says, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And that changed things for me. I'd been searching for hope, and what I'd found was eternal hope. But David was saying he was confident that there was hope here in this lifetime, to see and experience and know the goodness of the Lord. So then what is the goodness of the Lord? What is it we can actually hope for? The word that David uses in this psalm for goodness is tov. And if that sounds familiar, it's because the root of that word is tov. This is the word that Abraham uses when he sends his servant out 
to find a wife for Isaac. He says, load up the camels with all the goodness, the best of everything we have. When Pharaoh finds out that Joseph, Joseph's brothers are in town, he says, go back, get your families, don't worry about packing anything, because when you get back here, the best of everything, the best of what I have, the fat of the land will all be yours. It's the same word for goodness. Goodness is abundance and bounty, blessing, fullness, satisfaction, and plenty. It's the best of everything. So then what is it exactly is God's goodness? In Exodus 33, Moses says to God, show me your glory. Show me who it is that you are. And in answer to this, God says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name. Again, this is the same word for goodness. And when the Lord passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the goodness of who he is, the first thing God said is, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. God's goodness represents all of who God is, and it's really good. Who God is and his infinite abundance is our hope in this lifetime. Heaven is our eternal hope, and I'll get back to his compassion in just a minute. Yes, we grieve, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. It doesn't mean that this isn't hard and that it's not heartbreaking. What it means is it doesn't overwhelm us. It doesn't have that power over us. Lamentations 3, 22, 23 says, Because of the Lord's great love, because of who God is, because God is love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning and every hour and every minute. Great is his faithfulness. If you're a human on this planet, you will walk the road of grief. Either you have, or you will, or maybe you are right now. And this brings me to my final point, which is how can we as a community walk with those who are grieving, and how do we love them well? And the answer to this question can be summed up in one word, compassion. To be compassionate is to be moved by someone else's sorrow or suffering. The Greek word for this that I am not going to attempt to pronounce literally means to be moved in one's bowels. You know that sick in your stomach, punched in the gut feeling you get when you hear bad news? It's having that feeling on someone else's behalf. It's sorrow by extension. Compassion is empathy, care, tenderness, sensitivity, and love. Compassion also means patience and tolerance. I know when I'm grieving, I need a lot of patience and tolerance from the people around me. To me, the picture of someone who's grieving is someone who's sitting in the mud. Mud is messy and it's heavy, and it feels like grief. And you can't sit in the mud and then get up and walk away without being marked. Often people 
in an effort to help, we'll kind of like walk around the outside of the mud. And they say things like, everything happens for a reason. Your loved one is in a better place. They're no longer suffering. You can always have another baby. At least you had 20 years with him. Now you have your very own angel. That's one of my favorites. <laughs> all things work for good. Time heals all wounds. I know just how you feel. And eventually someone will come along and they might even like reach in and pat you on the head. And they say, all right, it's been long enough. It's time to get out of the mud, move on. The things we say to try to comfort people who are grieving might be true things, some of them, but that doesn't mean they're helpful. It might be true that your loved one's no longer suffering. You may be able to have another baby. It's absolutely true that God has the power to bring beauty out of incredibly painful circumstances. But quoting Romans 8.28 to someone whose child has just died, not helpful. I really don't think people are trying to be hurtful or cause more pain in these situations. I think we just don't know what to say. I've said some of these things before I had them said to me. <laughs> so there's a couple things to keep in mind when we're trying to comfort people who are grieving. Number one, we need to be really careful about policing other people's grief. And what I mean by that is deciding when or where or how or for how long or for whom people are allowed to grieve. A lot of the things that we consider acceptable about grief comes from society, culture, maybe our family or just our own personalities. But in supporting someone who's grieving, the focus needs to be on them, not on our own ideas about grief or maybe our personal hang-ups or comfort level. And then secondly, we need to be careful about comparing grief. I don't know if it's a competitive win mentality, because who wants to win at grief? But maybe we just try to consider the pain or grief we've known in an effort to sympathize. But I've seen this really clearly. Um, for a period of time, I led a, a support group for people who had experienced pregnancy loss. And in that situation, you can even put a number on your grief. People would say, oh, I lost my baby at 12 weeks. She was six weeks, my pain's worse. She was 20 weeks, her pain's worse. No. Your pain is your pain. Your grief is your grief. And we need to stop comparing and contrasting in order to be able to support one another well. What compassion really means is walking into that mud and sitting down next to the person and putting your arm around them. And if words are needed, which they often are not, I'm sorry, I'm here, I love you. The word compassion comes from the Latin word compati. Home meaning with, and pati meaning suffering. So compassion is literally saying, I am with you in your suffering. And just like vulnerability, true compassion can be super messy and really uncomfortable. 
and it's desperately needed. Multiple times in the New Testament, it said that Jesus was filled with compassion. And that's actually what motivated the majority of his healings. Isaiah says, the Lord comforts his people and has compassion on his afflicted ones. And God himself, when showing his glory to Moses, proclaiming who he is, called himself the compassionate and gracious God. I think a great example of this compassion is what we see in John 11. Mary and Martha had this brother named Lazarus, and Lazarus got sick. And Mary and Martha knew Jesus, and they trusted Jesus, so they called him and they said, Jesus, you need to come. Lazarus is sick. Please come heal him. But Jesus didn't come, and Lazarus died. When Jesus eventually did show up, too late by their estimation, Martha went running out to meet him. And the first thing she said was, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Martha was mad, just like I was mad, that Jesus didn't show up the way that she wanted him to. And then Mary came out, and she was weeping, and they were both really upset. And when Jesus saw this, John says he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And then Jesus wept. Think about that for a second. That Jesus, even though he was God, and he knew that within a matter of moments he would be raising Lazarus from the dead, he wept. If anyone ever had their right to throw out some platitudes, he did in that moment, but he didn't. Jesus wept, and he showed compassion. He was full of love, and he entered into the grief of the people that he loved, and he was with them in their suffering. And this is what we're called to do in community. Your grief may be raw today. Or maybe you need permission to grieve something you thought you were over or something you thought you should be over. I don't think that we ever in this lifetime truly get over the people that we grieve. I don't actually think that's a fair expectation of grief. Grief is not a linear process that you just follow to completion as much as I wish it was. And that's what's so beautiful about our someday hope. You won't always be actively grieving. Grief changes over time. It ebbs and it flows. Next month, it will be 20 years since my dad died. And over the last couple months, I have been grieving his death again. Now, if your grief is new, you're probably thinking that's not very hopeful. <laughs> But that's the thing about hope and grief, is they are not mutually exclusive. I'm grieving, and I'm hopeful. I see God's goodness, and I feel his compassion with me right in the middle of my mud puddle. Guys, I am not up here telling you, just have hope. I'm telling you that there is hope in this lifetime. 
And if you're feeling hopeless in your grief or in your pain right now, don't try to white-knuckle your way into having hope. Ask God, the compassionate and gracious God, to give you his hope. He is the hope. He provides the hope. As we enter our 60 seconds of silence, bring your grief to God and allow his goodness and his compassion to wash over you in a fresh way. Come Holy Spirit, speak to us now.